Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 290 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode, I talk to Derek Johnson and Clint Tasker of Thorium about their action-adventure roguelite game, Undermine. Yes, we had a similar sort of genre game last week. But this is a very, very different game. Can't stress that enough, actually. It's very, very different. And I just want to point out, episode 290... We're only 10 away! 10 away from the Mighty 300. We're going to reach it. In fact, I'm pretty close to recording the actual episode. But I won't reveal, of course, what that be subject of. English, breaking down. Clearly, I'm not well. Should we listen to me from the past who is well, and indeed was well? Chris, please get this out of this mess. Clint and Derek, who are you both and what do you do? <laughs> Uh, I guess I'll go first. Uh, my name's Clint Tasker. I am a game designer by trade. Um, I, I guess my official title at Thorium is creative director, but there's not a lot of us, so I, I, I mostly direct myself <laughs> and okay. a handful of people. Um, Derek? My name is Derek Johnson. I am the engineer at Thorium. And I guess, yeah, I would call myself a games engineer by trade, although... I started not in games, just like many engineers. started working at IBM many years ago and then eventually found my way to the games industry okay. where I met Clint Tasker. And that was the start of this whole thing. Wow. So what he hinted at the next question happens a lot because when you start talking about yourself in your career either, or what you do, you then start drifting off into what you used to do. And so mm-hmm. this next question sort of morphs into the first, but I have to ask you, you know, how did you make your start? Making video games. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, we go. Clint, Derek, Clint, Derek. Seems to work. I, I, okay. All right. Sounds good. Yeah. I've been making games for fifteen years professionally. Uh, original. So when I graduated high school, I went off to university because that's what everyone did. Um, but I was. I had become a pretty terrible student by that time, so I dropped out of university after two semesters because I. Uh, didn't go to classes. I went to the the campus arcade instead and played way too much Street Fighter. Yes, yeah, kind uh, of a requirement when you're a student. Like <laughs> I was, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was there and I was like, wait, do you curse on this podcast? Do I get to curse? You can if you like. Yeah, yeah okay, I'll try to hold it back. Out. I'll try. To, yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, holy shit! There's a lot of people who play uh, Street Fighter here, so I'm just yes. going to do this instead of go to um, chemistry or calculus. Uh, anyways, I dropped out of university. I floated around for a little bit, and then I found a school, uh, an art school that focused on kind of um, computer animation, game development, audio, like all the cutting edge, uh, new emerging industries. Like uh, th- these were kind of the very first game programs, long before they they had become popular. Um, so I started going there, and then I got really into it. Um, I had already known that I'd wanted to become a game developer, 
but I had like, man, back in the nineties or the early two thousands, like who had any idea of how to actually get into that industry. Um, so I graduated the program and then didn't get into the industry right away. Uh, so I took some, uh, terrible jobs doing call center work and things like that. Uh, and eventually I got sick of that and, uh, took a job at EA as a tester. Uh, making very, very little money and working very, very long hours. This was around the time the the Xbox 360 was launching. So uh, I got a cool first glimpse at a piece of hardware that no one knew existed yet, which was very cool. But uh, yeah, I worked at I worked at EA for a few years as a tester, and then I moved over to Relic, uh, which is where I eventually met Derek. Uh, at Relic, I got to cut my teeth as a designer a lot more. I got a lot more opportunity there. It was really great. Um, met Derek and then THQ was imploding at the time. THQ was our parent company. They were going bankrupt. So I ended up getting laid off along with like a third of the studio. Uh, I went to the States, uh, Relic is in Canada. So I, I got an email from a recruiter the day I was laid off. <laughs> I was drunk in the bar at like 10 AM along with everyone else in the studio. Um, so he emailed me and I was like, yeah, okay, let's talk uh, later. <laughs> and uh, I met with them and it was a mobile company. I was really nervous about going into mobile. Um, but I mean, we can either talk about this later or maybe not at all. But uh, they were a mobile company that wasn't quite like other mobile companies. They were a little bit more creative. And um, it was also the start of the mobile um, industry before it kind of became very data driven. Uh, so I ended up going or uh, coming down here to Seattle um, and working for five or six years. And eventually Derek, well, I'm going to get into Derek's story, but Derek left Relic and started Thorium. And then I joined Derek then. And that's pretty much that's pretty much my journey through games. Yeah, um, you're right. The mobile phone game thing, it's gone through different phases. And for me, it's like these little peaks of games that were just, bonkers um in a good way like cannibal that was one of the early ones mm, yeah um, in the in the early mobile end there, there's kind of like before clash of clans and after clash of clans and yeah. before kind of anything went and people were willing to try a lot of things and then after clash of clans it became an advertising cpi versus ltv data driven marketing yeah. uh, scheme so it's just strange and then it's that now it's moved on to something else i'm not sure what but for me, I don't pay much attention anymore. No, for me, it's just like oh, mobile game. What you mean, threes? Yeah, okay. Yeah, threes is good. <laughs> so take a take a drink, everyone. I mentioned threes. So right, you good. There you go. You know. Um, okay, uh, Derek. What, what about you? What? How did you make it start making flashy lighty video games? <laughs> yeah, well, like I mentioned, I started as an engineer at IBM. Right. Straight out of college, worked there for number of years really boring mainframe printer driver work i didn't enjoy it that much although it paid well but eventually got tired of that and decided i wanted to change so i took a i took my savings and lived off of it for two years while i sat in my bedroom writing my own game engine i just figured if i'm gonna get into the games as an engineer i have to have something to prove i have to have something to prove myself with so i figured this is a good challenge let me write my own game engine from scratch and I took two years and I did that. And I got a game engine pretty well together. It was 2D. It had physics. It had scripting engine. It had a great editor. It had the whole the whole nine yards. And I took this and chopped it around a bit at GDC and other events. But eventually, that ended up getting me, in part, the job at Relic. I also had a good friend there who put a word in for me. And I said, OK, I'm moving to Canada. Let's see what this is all about. And that was in 2009. and yeah, I got a job at Relic, worked there for about six years, mostly as a UI engineer. And I guess, Clint, you and I met probably 2010. Something like that, yeah. About, about a year, maybe. Yeah, and then figured, hey, I think I could do this better myself. So I'm going to go out on my own and see what happens. So that was the start of Thorium. Excellent. And that yeah. brings us up pretty much to today. I'm interested you mentioned the UI side of things and that people don't really understand how difficult it is to make a really good or indeed serviceable UI because 
it's uh, I know you understand it, but it's just you know it's the it's the it's the last ten percent and all that kind of stuff. All those cliches and the cliches because they're true typically, and uh, they are. You're right. It's just the amount of times I've played games or played demos of games at shows and stuff and. One of the ones that always bothers me is, uh, and you've got it right with Undermine, I'm happy to say, is um, I don't know how uh, unwell I am in this game. Am I about to die? Oh, wait, I am. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is something we, we discuss quite often in, when we're making UI. If somebody notices you, your UI, you've screwed up. Yeah. The best UI goes unnoticed. It's just a, a vehicle for for interacting with the game, and it should just get out of the way, and you should not have to notice it. One of the most immediate so. ones, one of the most best, most uh, best example I sort of cite to especially younger developers is uh, you played Destiny, right? Yeah. Where's yeah. your health bar? Where is it? It's a crescent, <laughs> a little, little line, just at right. the top of your eye. There it is. You know, you always know how much health you've got. Why? Because it's a little, very sort of opaque line, and it's a little crescent right at the top of the your viewing angle. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just and now granted they that's that, that's Bungie doing their thing and they've got a lot of people <laughs> they've probably done a lot of studies and really really you know know their stuff but even still that's uh it's it, I've always find that fascinating people don't understand that there's this inner sort of like ellipse ellipse of the screen you can actually see and everything beyond that is peripheral interesting it's subtle yeah yeah this is just like kind of any idea in the, in any industry really but. Yeah. People people share UI ideas and you learn from what other games have done. You know, Halo yeah. did the, the the overshield. Well, now that catches on and it catches on in the UI as well. People use did, a lot yeah. of similar tropes. Yeah, Halo did the uh, two-weapon thing and the shield. You're right. Recharging shield. Very interesting. So, let's move on to the nebulous third question, the infamous third question, which I know you're not familiar with, but my listeners are. But I have to ask it, and I ask you both of you if you can actually conjure something up for it, because it's important that I ask you this as creators of things. What do you believe are your biggest influences? <laughs> um, I mean, I've had a lot of influences over the years, and I, I, I'm pretty open-minded when it comes to I guess just consuming media in general, I, I go through phases of things I enjoy. Uh, the first game that I like, the first game, I mean, when I saw Mario Brothers, I fell in love with video games and I was very, very young when that happened. But the first game I remember playing where I actually thought about becoming a developer was Warcraft 2. Um, I had played Dune 2 and kind of really gotten into RTSs before anyone knew what an RTS was, like the genre didn't exist. Um, and then Warcraft 2 came along years later and reignited that. Um, uh, but, man, I mean, influences for Undermine. Like, actually, Undermine, <laughs> I'm going to get so much uh, shit from roguelike fans. I, I didn't play a lot of roguelikes until I started working on Undermine. Derek had already started it, and so it was already a roguelike. Um, I had played Rogue Lights, and the one I liked the most was Rogue Legacy. Uh, and I think what I needed to start enjoying that genre was the progression, was not losing everything. Um, I'm kind of okay with that now. Like, I don't mind. Actually, the older I get, the more I enjoy this type of genre where I don't have to invest a lot and I can just pick up something and play it and not have to worry about putting hours into it before I can enjoy it. Um, so with Undermine, we try and strike a balance between those two things. Um, and really, I mean, Derek and I, I think, have very similar tastes. Uh, more recent, more recent inspirations are are kind of world building inspirations. Things like Dark Souls and Berserk, uh, which which inspired Dark Souls. Um, it's not that we want to make one-to-one -one connections between those things and our game but we look at what how they built their worlds and and what contributed to that and i think we don't neither of us are really narrative focused people we're not writers um i mean i've written a lot for undermine i don't really consider myself a writer though um but we do it in service of world building because i do think that's quite important it's 
Um, when you make items, they're not, they, people don't care about them right away. And then if you give the item some lore, some connection to the world or some other character, then that gives it a little bit more for somebody to latch onto, some, something for people to care about rather than just the function of the item. And then when you start doing that with more and more things, then the world that you inhabit, whether it's fantastical or cartoony or anything, uh, starts to become feel more real and and has a lot of depth to it. Um, even even with children's things, like you can look at something like uh, Adventure Time, which is a silly cartoon on the surface, but when you go to YouTube, you see things that are uh, digging into its world building, and it goes very very far down. Um, so yeah, I guess those are those are the more recent inspirations for for me personally. Okay, so it's really um, the path trodden by others, and you recognize that, and you, you you doth your cap to their works, and think, actually, we could add to this, we could expand on this. And then there's also the, the aspect of um, depth, you know, the perception of, oh, this is just a, a thing, and uh, this is just, oh, you, you, the initial perception is like, oh, I've, done, I've played this before, actually, no, no, I haven't. And that's that's wonderful. Yeah, that's, you know, I think you I want. think I think the influences I'm more aware of are the ones in fields that I'm weaker in, um, because I'm leaning on those more. I I have played thousands of video games in in my lifetime, and I'm very mechanics and systems focused, and that has right. been where most of the work in my career has laid. And so I almost don't recognize where I'm pulling those references from anymore because they're so ingrained in me. Uh, writing and world building is a is a new thing for me, and so I'm I'm far more aware of where I'm pulling from in in those cases. Interesting. Okay. Right. Uh, is that really just for do you think Thorium sort of like that's what you're doing? That's what where your your stick is. That's where your what drives you is to explore those two avenues. I think. Uh, I mean for. Yeah, for Thorium, like Derek and I have very strong opinions on on the mechanical side of games, and that's why Undermine probably feels more mechanical than narrative focused. Um, I think recently in my career, I have wanted to explore the world building and and even the narrative side more of the. Uh, so so when Undermine was first started, or when I when I came onto Undermine in in 2018, there was no story or characters or anything like that. And so I, I made a conscious decision to to expand that. And part of it was because I was interested in developing that area. Like for indie for us is us being able to do the things that we wanted to do at other companies and we're told not to or or worse, like, you know, there was not enough time or we didn't have enough expertise to work on that particular area. Indie lets you do all of those things. Yeah. So it's like, well, yeah, you can you can do that as a personal project if you like, but it would belong to us, kind of thing, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, it's uh, it's it has its own, yeah. You want to explore these areas and, and aspects of games that is evolving or emerging, but you're 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 tasked with something else, and I can imagine that can be maybe potentially quite frustrating. So here we are. Right. Next question. I've got a. I've got a few more references, if you wouldn't mind. Oh, sure. sorry. The, uh, the, very, the very outset of the game was heavily influenced by Warcraft 3. Actually, the the subtle underlying story that we don't really advertise that much, but I wanted to just tell the story of what, what the peasant does down in the, down in the gold mine. That's, that's the untold story from Warcraft, is you send your peasant into the mine. With more work, come, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he comes out with 10 gold. Yeah, and that's somehow. it. Well, what did he go? What did he go through to get that gold? Okay. I wanted to tell that story. So here yeah. we are. You send your peasant into the mine, and You'd probably beat up at least twenty pilferers at a time. And, you know <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you slay a huge sandworm and all this other stuff to get that gold, and yeah. that that story is never told in Warcraft. So no, no. that was a that was a huge influence, obviously. And but yeah. we take our influences from a wild number of places. I mean, we have. Cormac McCarthy references in the game. We have Guns N' Roses references in the game. I mean, it's all over the place. Yeah. It's not just games that we that we draw inspiration from. I think I get a lot of inspiration from music and movies and books and all the other media that you consume gets wrapped up into what you're creating. 
I, I, even though it's not directly related, I'll just get really pumped up listening to music while I'm making an item or something. I, the, the disconnect is, is apparent objectively, but subjectively, I really feel that that burning desire to create something by listening to this piece of music over here. So it all feeds together. And I, I think that's the process that both Clint and I find really enjoyable. We, we, we've really tried hard to create this sort of developer sandbox environment for us to just express gameplay ideas in. We've built all these systems where we can crank out a lot of really high quality items really quickly. All the systems are interconnected. And that just gives us a lot of satisfaction, I think, just to experience that joy of creation in this environment that we've made in this sort of developer sandbox that undermine has become yes it does feel very modular but um you've done a great job of actually making that a blur you know it's like this is not obvious trust trust us it looks like but it's just that doesn't become important it just the only thing i find is i'm always as i'm entering an area and i've dealt with the area as far as i'm aware i then go okay let's go into the new room brace yourself <laughs> it's just you have no idea what that next room will be. You got some clues sometimes, little icons of like who knows what's behind that door that you just unlock with the precious key that you just earned. About that, you spent a key to open that door. Who knows what's behind it? Good point. Oh man. Anyway, let's go. Let's do it anyway. Uh, but yeah, no good answers. And yeah, Warcraft Three. We stay. Yeah, that's a game for certain. And I'll answer questions. Where do those miners go? What happens to them? <laughs> well, now more you know. Work. That's all they say. Okay. Fine. That was the original title we were working with for the game. Actually, was <laughs> off I go then. Off I go then. Off I go then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't do the orc one. Well, I could try, but no. Anyway. <laughs> um. Next question. Next question is actually some people find difficult to answer because they don't want to. They don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. The reason for it. You'll realise why in a second. And here here it comes. What developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I think... uh, I mean, you're not going to hurt anyone's feelings by saying you admire them, right? No. I guess it's all the people you don't. The people you don't say. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I I think earlier in... My career, I was far more focused on the big guys. You know, I really loved Blizzard growing up. I really loved, uh, uh, I mean, Hideo Kojima, his his stuff influenced me a lot. Shigeru Miyamoto, his stuff influenced me a lot. I mean, every 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 game developer is influenced by those people, right? Indeed. Um, recently, it's shifted probably more towards indies other indies and because we are growing our indie company and we're taking this path that kind of at this point many people have taken um and so now we're we're looking for them for inspiration and like how did they do it um and i'm trying i'm delaying right now because i'm trying to think of a specific one to point out and be like oh that's the one that really really influences at this point i don't know d you probably you probably have one more at the front of your brain. I've got an answer, yeah. You want me to go? Sure. Okay. If I had to pick an individual, I would pick Derek Yu of Spelunky. He was tremendously influential to me in the very early days when I was working on my own game engine. That was the time when Aquaria was first in IGF, and and he was really brought to the forefront. And I took a perilous road trip down to San Francisco from Colorado to go meet Derek Yu at GDC specifically. I just wanted to shake that guy's hand and say, this is incredible. I can't believe that that mere mortals can create video games like this. I mean, it was really just a two-man team, and they made this jaw-dropping game. Nobody had seen a two-man team do anything like that at that point. And he's gone on to have a tremendous career. He's He's written a book. He's, you know, he's the man. He does everything right, and he's really respectful. He always gives you his his time. I felt like a little kid at PAX last year going up to him and asking for him to sign my book. I felt so embarrassed to do that, but I had to do it because I respect the guy so much. It meant so much to me. I, I, don't, I don't have celebrity crushes on anybody except for him. <laughs> so <laughs> as far as an influential solo developer or you know, single person, I think he's the guy for me. That's a really good answer. Thank you. 
Clint, have you got anything or? I'm still trying to think of like individuals. <laughs> I, 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 it's tough. I, I think we, we really respect certain indie houses. Um, like, I mean, you can say a company. That's fine. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, like Supergiant. I have, a, I have a lot of respect for Supergiant because the thing I, the thing I love most about them is that they do not repeat themselves. And I think that's the thing that I want to be able to do in my career. And that's the frustrating thing about being in AAA or in mobile or anything else is that your ability to be creative is very limited. You have to make a sequel. You have to make something safe because there's so much money going into it. And so in indie, for Supergiant to go from Bastion to Transistor, which I really love, um, and then to, uh, was Pyre the next one? Mm -hmm. um, but to just say that, like, oh, we're going to make a, a visual novel basketball sports game and 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 just be like, that's the thing we're going to bank our company's future on is is so bold and refreshing. And I, I really love companies that do that. And another company is uh, Subset, who did FTL and then Into the Breach. I, I know Derek is a huge FTL fan. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah, and, and really just uh, as... Uh, I didn't know how much I would love being an indie developer or being part of this community until I did it. And now I almost ignore the rest of the video game industry because the amount of creativity uh, in these smaller games and the amount of risk taking is is really inspiring. And um, I hope that we get to continue doing it uh, like these companies that we look up to. Yeah, I really can relate to that. And we've had Supergiant on the show, I'm happy to say. Uh, and uh, when they did Transistor, we're going to get them back mm. on for Hades because that's an amazing game. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Hades, yeah. Hades is a pretty good. Outstanding. And uh, then their take on on this one, which you're uh, going into, is uh, is very much they've got a signature, haven't they? It's got to be said they do have a thing. I, I think their signature is just quality and polish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they have a visual style signature, but like they're the games that they make are so wild across the board. So Yeah. Yeah. But um no, it, excellent responses. So, last question of the first half. See, you made it. Well done. See? <laughs> almost. Almost. Yeah, there. almost there. Almost there. But then you get the the mini boss in the middle. So, <laughs> Uh, I have to ask this question because this is a podcast about video games. If I didn't ask this question, I'd get in trouble. We'd all get in trouble. We don't want that. The question is this. What are you playing right now? Oh, man. Uh, now, <laughs> I talk a bunch of, about a bunch of indie games and then what I'm playing right now is like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is super rare for me, actually. I haven't played shooters in, in a really, really long time. Well, it's sort of a lie, but... Um, I haven't played competitive shooters in a really long time. Right. Uh, I got into PUBG a little bit. Um, that's a weird. And then game, I, though. I mean, that's forty. It was minutes. weird, but it was cool yeah. because it was new and it, it was wow. Innovation had been brought to shooters after a long time. Um, I mean, if you were if you were into the armor scene, it probably didn't feel as new. But no, if no. you were if you're outside looking in, it was it was pretty new. Um, uh, but the new their their new battle royale is really cool, really stylized, really streamlined, really easy to get into, drop into, and I and mostly the reason I played is because it's a way to connect with friends right now. I can't go to the bar and have a beer with them, so we play Understood. COD online. Um, D and I play a lot of Underlords Auto Battler by Valve, which has the Dota. We 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 had played Dota for God. We probably combined have 10,000 hours in dota between the two of us um or han or any other equivalent uh and then we finally quit that drug and and now we just play um uh underlords which is like our patch for it um but that's that's mostly it i i finished bloodborne again for like the third time recently no, nice. so yeah okay I think the thing I've I've I realized that when you and I've heard a lot of developers say this, and you've probably heard this in your podcast quite a lot too, is that when you really really get involved in game development, that is the drug. You you pay attention to what's going on in other games, and sure you dabble in a few of them, but the amount of hours that you just sink into actually playing a game goes way down because you have to sink that same amount of hours and Indeed. more into developing your own game. So you kind of have to by proxy stay apprised as to what's going on with games so so yeah i 
I don't really play a huge amount of games anymore. We fell off the Dota bandwagon, and I play Underlords. I've been sort of getting into Minecraft with another friend again. But yeah, it's hard. It's heartbreaking to kind of look back on my my past and think, man, I was such a huge gamer, and I played everything, and I played it all day, all night, every day. But that's not true anymore. I just sort the, of observe. The now. passion changes, I think. When you become a developer, the passion, like you say, the passion becomes making the game. And when you are in the thick of things, like uh, we've we've easily had weeks where we're doing 80, 100 hours, like just just too too much work. And the last thing you want to do, like games, the, the cool thing about games is they engage your brain, right? Like they make you think, they challenge you. Um, but it's exhausting, isn't it? well if if you if you're doing like something else during the day and you come home and that's the thing that like re like triggers your brain and makes you interested in something that's cool when you're a game developer you're you're mentally exhausting yourself like all day long like you are just solving problems constantly that's all you ever do and so like for me personally like the last thing i want to do after working 12 hours a day on a game is to like pick up a from game and challenge myself more. <laughs> um, and so it, it does become like Derek says, hard to play games. And sometimes the games that you do want to play are just mindless. Or um, for me, it's really like I, I do even worse. I'll just like binge a TV show or something and barely pay attention to it. It's, it's really hard. Yeah. I find yeah. that the, the reason I play games has really shifted too. I mean, I used to play games just to, you know, have fun and feel powerful and all that kind of stuff. But these days I play games to, to figure out how they made something. I'll sit mm-hmm. down with a game for like five minutes and I'll be like, okay, what's their menu system like? Or how do they do the easing on their jump? Or, you know, how did they uh, t- tackle this problem that we are up against here? And then once I learn that answer, I'm done with that game. Right. I got my answer from it. You, so it's more, of, it's more of studying than playing anymore. Interesting. Yeah, you can just, you can, you can be behind the curtain now. Oh look, it's yeah. Bloke. yeah. Oh great. And because of that, you just you've basically <laughs> like the... you know, it's the matrix thing, which has now been twenty years, everyone. Uh people going, Oh, I can see the code now. That's <laughs> the other half of it is uh once you know the sausage is made, uh, Yay! uh, 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 uh. done. <laughs> yeah, when once you know like once you know how it's done, it's it like yeah. My my love affair with AAA games has just washed away because it's like okay yeah third person shooter and you're it's linear or third person shooter and it's a RPG adventure like yeah sure there's like thematic differences and there's you know slight mechanical differences or combat slightly different but you start to see the the skeleton and you're just like okay yeah I get it like I can I can extrapolate out from the first five minutes what my thirty hour experience with this game is going to be and I don't need to bother anymore so. Well, on that note, should we go on to the second half? Sure. And Let's talk do it. In depth about, no pun intended, sorry everyone, Undermine. do that before we can do uh, talk at length about undermine we need to know what it is so gentlemen in your own words what is undermine okay the the marketing for undermine is action adventure roguelike which and maybe a little bit rpg and that's mostly because we we take our inspiration from a lot of things and uh, a lot of people had take issue with what a roguelike is um for 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 me personally, roguelikes are not necessarily like they're not copies of rogue. Um, that would be a very small genre for me. Roguelikes, it's more about the spirit of what a roguelike entails. You know, kind of 
doing a run. I think I think actually roguelike is shorthand for a lot of people of like run based games um, because that has become a popular structure for a lot of different genres. Um, and and that's that's kind of where we are taking roguelike from. So you can call it a road light roguelite, or you can call it an action adventure. You can call it any of those things. Um, but we take our inspiration from a lot of things. We we do want to make a run based game that has a lot of like mechanical and system uh, depth. Uh, so like lots of items that interact with one another. And earlier you said modularity. Modularity in our game is very intentional. Um, the negative things that you get in the game, curses that impact you, uh, they're, they're kind of stat reductions or they impact your game in a negative way. They are treated as items that can be traded or sold or taken off of you or converted. Um, everything in our game is kind of treated like a currency. Um, and the strategic depth comes from managing that currency throughout your run. Am I going to use this key to get a bomb, or am I going to use these items to get this relic? Uh, and then if I have this relic, what other relics do I need to be looking out for or trying to gain in order to build a crazier combo? Um, and so we put a lot of effort into making it so that everything interacts cleanly with one another, which, which again, comes back to modularity. You want things to have very clean inputs and outputs so that when, when a player comes across something and says, this is the way I, my brain tells me that this should work, we want it to work like that. Um, and as you, as you dump more and more content into the game, uh, it becomes trickier and trickier to do that. Every time we want to push the envelope of a new item and say, we're going to make an item that works like nothing else in our game, we have to rewrite a bunch of our game to make sure that it interacts with everything else um, in the way that it should. Um, and so. Uh, and and Derek um, earlier said a, a sandbox. And even though our game is sort of linear, you know, you're going down. You, you you know, on every floor, your goal is to reach the exit, and then every four floors, your goal is to kill the boss and and to do that over and over. Um, we want that experience, that linear experience, to feel very open and very creative for a player by constantly giving them new decisions to make, um, whether that's how they manage their resources or um, now getting into things like how fast they do something. Um, and we just want to keep pushing that so that the the decision making becomes dense and, and you're constantly weighing strategic choices. Um, in, in a package that seems very simple up front, uh, a lot of people you know, get into our game and we try and slowly roll things out um, because we want you to kind of understand the basics before we get you into that. That, that pretty that's much sums the... it up, I think so. Okay, yeah. good, because I, that's that's, I, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was rambling or not. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, I mean, sometimes some guests have asked me to do it because it's fine. What do you think it is, Chris? Well... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that's that's super valid. I mean, you get close to your game and you're just like, "What am I even making anymore? Yeah. <laughs> is this good? I don't know what good even yeah. is anymore." And I go, "Oh sure. yeah, it's a, it's a top-down racer." What? Yeah, totally. I know. <laughs> anyway, um, so first detailed design question I've got. Here you go, building myself up. But it's true. Um, but I've, just one thing that struck me immediately when I when I delved into Undermine. There, there goes my puns again. It's so good. Um, <laughs> Why do you have so many environmental hazards? Just, just they're everywhere. Everywhere. Oh, that's every that's sort of me. <laughs> room. It's just like that's the first thing. Like, what can't I touch? What am I gonna fall down? Because the great crevices, the massive holes. The fact that you, you know, you're on this top down, but you jump. Everyone, yeah. Seriously, you mm. jump. It's just like so against everything. Like, no, no, you don't jump and. It's not when I when I played um, uh, Dark Souls Genesis, which is a hack and slash that has mm -hmm. jumping in it and platforming. It's a great game, I found it very entertaining, but it's got jumping and platforming mm -hmm. in it, and it just I was like I loved it. Don't get me wrong, but it's just like what's this about? And then I suddenly realised, oh wait, the environment matters, and I'm just going to ask, why did you go this way with Undermine? Derek, you can you can talk about jumping. I'll talk about environment stuff. Okay, jumping is a really contentious thing. I, I'm so conflicted on our jump even today. I think Clint's probably in the same boat here. 
jumping is a decision I made really early on in development. I just wanted a good feeling jump. And, uh, and I, I think I maybe went that direction for the very reason I think that you're pointing out is that jumping, you don't often see jumping in a top-down game. So how can we differentiate ourselves from other top-down games? Well, let's have a jump. And a lot of it just kind of came as a, just a consequence of our ability to do things. We didn't have the animation muscle to do a good dodge roll. I didn't have the, the programming experience to figure out how a, how a dodge roll would interact with our really complex environments and how the physics would work out and how we, we only have four directions of facing. So when you, if you dodge roll, you kind of have to maybe pick one of those four or go in a diagonal direction except play the east facing animation. There was just a whole bunch of stuff I didn't have the capacity to figure out at the time. So the jump sort of came about as just a consequence of our capacity, if I can say it like that. And yet it's turned into this really complex sort of environmental manipulation tool. It's an extremely powerful combat tool, one that I think we're always constantly trying to sort of design around because it is so overpowered in a lot of respects. It's a very contentious thing, but yet it's so core to the experience and understanding what undermine is it's it's a it's a complex thing for us emotionally it's complex <laughs> the yeah the jump the jump kind of goes along with what you were talking about with originally with the the environmental effects uh when i joined undermine there wasn't a lot of um there wasn't a lot of environment stuff going on there were holes but that was about it i guess there were probably spikes too just classic things from other games but our game interacts with them differently like in the binding of isaac if you push up against a hole you can't do anything it's the edge of the the floor as far as the game is concerned unless you gain flying or some other other thing in our game if you push up against the hole you fall into it and <laughs> that was that's been a struggle since the beginning because a lot of people's perception on when you should fall into a hole dif is <laughs> changes depending on their their experience with games if you've played Mega Man, then you don't fall into a hole until the last little pixel of your foot uh like your entire the entirety of your body needs to be over the hole before you fall into it. Um, but the main decision to start adding things like oil and uh, fire and electrified water was uh, if you're going to create a slew of items that power you up, you have to have challenges that that demand you overcome them. You have to have, and this is a chicken and the egg problem in, in making a game, is do you create the power-ups first or do you create the challenges first? Um, I think it's you, you should probably start creating interesting challenges and then the items will basically make themselves. So like, oh, well, if oil exists on the ground and it limits your movement by 50% and it doesn't allow you to jump, then an easy item to make is an item that negates that effect. Um, so that was part of the reason. The other part of the reason is it goes back to something I said before, where we want the game to interact the way people think it should interact. And so if you're going to have items that trigger lightning strikes, then if you're standing on water, the the water should become electrified. That's how things work, right? And so uh, we, we've gone further and further down this route as we've seen people play the game, as we see what their expectations are, and then we try to match those expectations. We went to DreamHack in 2018, uh, and it was the first time that we had seen people play the game uh, other than ourselves or people that we knew. So that was very interesting. And there's these objects in the mines that lie along the back wall that are, are kind of like boarded up. Um, they're just boards. Um, but they look like they can be destroyed or they look like they're sealing up a passage or something. And people would constantly swing at them or throw a bomb at them and nothing would happen. And we'd see the disappointment on their face. And I mean, to them, it was no big deal. They'd go on, they'd go on and do whatever. But we were like, oh man, we're failing because we we didn't match that person's expectation. So the first thing we did when we got home was go and make those destroyable and make things pop out of them. Uh, just, yeah, part of matching, patching what, what people think should happen in the game and then making that actually true. Yeah, yeah. It's really clever and really sort of well-designed. I can see how it's been evolved over time. And the next question um, is very much built on what we've been the opening gambit was actually about what is undermined, but I want to, I want to talk more about really how 
unapologetic Undermine is as regards to it being a roguelike. It's not trying to hide it. It's not trying to say, oh, yeah, this is a grand scope adventure. Well, a little bit of, you know, because you might find that in a lot of publishing like documents like or press releases, like, you know, three, four paragraphs down, they might mention the words rogue and like in close proximity to each other. But that's not the case with Undermine. You said, no, 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 it's running a heart on a sleeve here. It's what it is. It's, it's, it's roguelike. You, oh. it, it's just like, in your face, like, and that's great because it's not, that's fascinating. Yeah, because D D's initial like reason of making the game was because he thought roguelikes were popular and that he wanted to market <laughs> it that way. <laughs> well, it's it's twofold. I, yeah, I, I I thought that was the case, and also I didn't want to have to write a save system. <laughs> so I figured let's make a roguelike well foolish me I, I ended up writing a big save system to support our roguelike because there is a lot of stuff you have to save but Indeed. yeah it's true We, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you, you have the perception that we've leaned into that because and how has that I affected think, the design then the, the fact that you don't have to go oh let's bolt this thing in let's do this this and that and let's try to uh, patch over this and stuff. it's not roguelike nothing to see here move along you you know you're, you're not doing that you're actually saying oh no it is totally and well, i feel i feel like we're maybe maybe we have a i think our perception's a little different i think the way I, I think i do hide the fact that it's a roguelike a little bit um like it was it was a very conscious decision early on to make it so that you could level up your character and that there would be like RPG type things, like you'd unlock characters. Um, that that uh, the the psych or sorry, the inspiration for the RPG side of things was actually a really old um, game called uh, Soul Blazer, which is part of the uh, Terranigma Soul Blazer Illusion of Gaia trilogy by uh, damn it, what's their name? It's, uh, <laughs> Huh? No, Atlas published it, but it was like uh, Quintet. Quintet, I think, was the developer because they made oh, four yeah. games or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um. Anyways, that that old RPG kind of had the same cadence of an of a roguelike. You know, you go into the dungeon, you kill some stuff, you come out, and you, the town would expand. Um, I part of the development of Undermine was going back to my personal journey with the genre of like how rogue legacy kind of snuck roguelikes into my life because uh, it, it allowed me to latch onto things that I, I, I wasn't getting from other games in the genre. And then I think as development went on, uh, Derek already really enjoyed roguelikes. I, I started enjoying more normal roguelikes that didn't have progression or anything like that. And, and so Undermine is trying to be, kind of all things to all people it does turn off some people who really just want a classic roguelike of like there is no progression there is nothing to unlock there is only things to explore and figure out um because we 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 put that stuff up front the leveling up and the character unlocks and things like that um but as you get further in the game uh, you can open up an entire mode that is essentially a classic roguelike mode where there is like your progression doesn't matter anymore. You 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 just have to do the run. Um, but I I think it's part of where the indie indie industry is too. Is roguelike has there are so many now that the term is is not a negative or positive thing. It is just a descriptor. Um, and people kind of have their stance on how they feel about those things. But I think if anything, you learn the indie audience is quite open-minded to things. Um, and so they're, they are willing more than anyone else to dive into a game and figure out what it is rather than worrying about what the descriptor is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's, it's great that you've done that and just embraced it and it's fine. And then, made you your own thing as well and you're like it's just a descriptor we as developers we are quite unapologetic in a lot of cases <laughs> we, uh, the reason of being indie is to have a bold voice in and and derek neither derek or i are very like communicative on social media or anything but our bold voice comes through our game like we want to make a game a certain way and when we get feedback it is either that is good feedback or I hear what that person is saying, but I don't care because it goes against what I want to do. Mm -hmm. This is something we, we spend quite a lot of time discussing is how's, how's the best 
what's the best way to communicate to our community what we're thinking? And I think often we just come back to the answer is it's the game. We communicate via the game. Don't engage people on the Steam forums and don't get into arguments on Discord. Just express what you're feeling through the game. And that's the answer to their question is what yeah. the code says the game does. Stand, so there's, that's our most expressive tool. Yeah, stand by your work. That's what you meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. The pilferers then. We mentioned earlier, everyone listening, uh, the pilferers are little <laughs> yellow-green blob things that appear when you dig out some gold. Because that's what you're there for, by the way, as a miner. You're mining for gold, because like I said, more work. Yeah, there you go. And uh, <laughs> when you when that the gold splashes out and you go running after it, these little fellas come out and start stealing it. Well, try to anyway. Um, I find it really fascinating because um, in that they seem to be, I think, they may be wrong, but are they linked to the amount of hazards or the location of hazards in the room? Because the amount of times I've gone chasing after little tykes and then found myself plunder, well, potentially almost plundering into the depths of, of death or some other hazard. Is that was that deliberate, or was it something that evolved and suddenly became a thing? I mean, just the, the pilferers generally. Where did they come from? <laughs> the pilferers They're... were always there. <laughs> they were actually one of the very very first things I put into the game. Right. I just wanted, I wanted a pressure on the player to just not mindlessly be able to just pick up resources. I wanted a slight edge of a mini game involved in resourcing. And yeah, you you often do get yourself into a lot of trouble because you chase the pilfer too far and you ended up stepping on some spikes or they just add a general sense of chaos to the room, which I think is something we've had back to being unapologetic. We've had to be very unapologetic about pilfers. A lot of people are, are intensely frustrated by pilfers. And we just have to stand our ground on that because they're they're to me, they're a very deep down expression of of what I want to get across with this game. I don't want to just let you pick up that gold. How many pieces of gold have you picked up in your life? A lot. Like billions of pieces probably. Oh yeah. Across via, all, via, all the... via video game, otherwise there'd be a lot of rich people. Yeah, I was there. about to say, like, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, games, sorry. So, it, it, yeah. In a video game, yeah. How many coins have you picked up? How many gems have you picked up? How many pieces of gold have you picked up? A whole lot. We're all familiar with that. But I just wanted to just change that game just ever so slightly. And the pilfers have, have evolved into this mascot, really, for us. They're, they're this kind of cute, frustrating, adorable, contentious platform for us to use as the as the face of the game. Yeah, absolutely. Plushies and all sorts. Who knows? But, you name um, it, yep. Yeah, but... Uh, for me, like the, the the whole gold gathering thing, I remember many, 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 many years ago playing Gauntlet, and my brother and I were sitting there, and then he would go charge off. He's slightly older than I, and he would go, oh, he start he start muttering when he was getting loads of gold. He'd just go, greed, greed, <laughs> greed. <laughs> and ever since then, whenever I'm picking up gold in any game, it's my brother's voice in my head going, greed. <laughs> so- <laughs> That's that's always the first question I wonder. People, players, the first time they see pilfers, they're like, why are they stealing my gold? And my question to them is, well, what, what makes it your gold? Just because it's there, you claim ownership of it? <laughs> Possession. I just, the, again, it's it's just back to challenging the, the player's perception a little bit of what it is to, to resource in a game. The, this is kind of like one of the areas where, like, if, if we were to say Dark Souls or From or Miyazaki was like an exp- uh, was a influence on our game, people would be like, "What? I don't know what you're talking about." I mean, we have a couple of icons that reference Dark Souls things, but the the thing that I think Derek and I both love about Dark Souls is it's a world that doesn't care about you as a player. You like the the experience is not tailored to you. It is not there to make your journey easy or streamlined or anything. It is a world that is uncaring, and you your goal is to navigate it. Um, and pilfers are kind of an expression of that. Like like D made pilfers this uh, entity in the mines, and they care about gold, and that's all they care about. And mechanically, people are like, I don't understand why pilfers exist. They don't they don't serve a purpose. They don't they don't reward me in any way. And it's like, well. It's not all about reward. It's you just need to deal with this thing that exists. That's the way the game works. Um, and 
like like we've said it's it's about being unapologetic it's like well we're not going to streamline our game to 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 deal with this feedback this is the this is the way the game is and either you adapt to it or or you put it down and i'm sure some people have because they just can't handle it or they don't i mean they they're they're too uh frustrated by that that element if we were to collect uh, unfortunately we don't do we don't do this but if we were to collect global stats on how much gold pilfers have actually taken from players it's vanishingly small like they have almost no impact on on the resourcing aspect of the game at all over all players no, but no, it's no. just the, the amount of chaos that they bring and the perception of of them that and, and really the game is balanced assuming you're going to lose like one of the nuggets out of every single thing that you mine yeah so <laughs> if, you, if you don't then you're 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 ahead of the game you're ahead yeah for me uh it's very similar to uh the design of mobas what do you have to understand when you're playing a MOBA? And I know you, you two sort of hinted at that earlier. Is that you got involved with that, and it's probably influenced you unconsciously. Maybe I don't know, but you're not the center of the universe in MOBAs. You are not the most right. important thing on the screen. In fact, you're just a Absolutely. one very large cog, an important cog, but nonetheless, it's not you taking out the towers, is it? No, it's the creepers. <laughs> it's the <laughs> ones that are doing. You're facilitating the destruction of things. And you're being you're a very huge impact on it, but you are not the be all and end all. And that's the difficult for people to get their head around when they play Mobius for the first time. Like, wait, I'm not the center universe? Nope. Exactly. If yeah. you start thinking like that, you're the worst MOBA player ever. <laughs> you know, it's just like you're not getting this at all. But I look, I'm in the center of the screen. Everything the move the whole screen moves around with me. I know, isn't that weird? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, games, games have done a lot to train players that they are the most important thing in the world. But mm. I, I find it interesting when games uh, yeah. flip that on its head. Yeah, I think one of the other themes that undermine that that sort of speaks to that is that the, you are just a lowly peasant, right? I mean, sure, you become super powerful, you become more powerful than everything. But we wanted to just tell the story as well of just these lowly peasants, and they are not the heroes, and they die a lot, and there's lots of them, and they're just getting ground up by this meat grinder. So. There you go. They are not the center of the world. They're they're uninvited trespassers into the undermine. Yes. Now, last question. I oh, know all good things must come to an end, but we gotta gotta finish eventually. I thought so, there was a mini boss. We missed the mini boss. Well, yeah, yeah. You kind of skipped. It. You did. You didn't count it, but you managed to get overcome. With the mini boss oh, okay. was what is undermine. <laughs> so you did. Oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good mini boss. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I just want to ask, how do you, what have you done in the design of Undermine to prevent player fatigue? What have you done? Because it requires repeated play. It's not the new game plus thing, because that's a thing that's existed, apparently invented in inverted commas about 10, 15 years ago. No, this is about you re-experiencing things and still keeping it interesting, still you know, encouraging the player. Yeah, you you died. You, you you but you can learn from that, can't you? Don't don't do that again. You know, or you know, there's that boss you encountered, and like, you know what it does now. You know, when you enter that room, like, oh, what's this? Okay, well, I know what yeah. to do. I think. So, what have you done? What have you done in undermine to encourage players? To go. It's okay. It's all right. You can do this. We believe in you. Uh I feel I feel like that is the majority of of the work going into Undermine, and and part of that is the structure that a roguelike affords. I think the thing that is strong about them, and the thing that makes them appealing to uh, certain types of people, is that they have self-contained uh, play sessions, kind of by nature. Is you you pick up the game, you play a run, and then you die, and that's kind of a good point to either say i'm going to do that again or i'm going to put this down um but m more specifically to your question about fatigue over a long-term period is content just enormous amounts of content and very creative ways to hide it and allow people to discover it through exploration or through unlocking it or or overcoming challenges and things like that and to be honest that that really consumes a large majority of our thought process around the game is how can we put more and more interesting content in this game how can we make it so that you're not just simply unlocking it by the same means over and over again 
And how can we hide it in ways that will reward people who pay attention, but not frustrate people who can't find it? And I think we've made some missteps in in that area is like, oh, well, there's there's some things that you can only encounter through happenstance, and maybe that percent chance is too low. And so somebody who's played the game for 20 hours will not see that thing. Uh, whereas, and, and maybe somebody who has, has played the game for 200 hours has not seen that game, just sheer bad luck. Um, that's part of the question. And... And I think we want to make a game where people can really come to it for as long as they want. If they've put 10 hours into it, they should feel satisfied. Um, probably defeating the game from start to finish at this point now maybe takes about 20 hours for an average player. So that's that seems like a good amount of time if all you want to do is pick up the game for some amount of time. But we also want people to be able to play it forever. We want people to be able to put thousands of hours into it and still feel satisfied. And so... It comes down to how can we make build strategies more deep so that people can experiment, uh, even if that's not the optimal way to play, they can they can try new things. Uh, how can we reward people who have put that much effort into the game without making uh, other players feel bad about not unlocking that stuff? Um, there's I don't think there's perfect answers to any of these questions, but this is the thing that we ask ourselves all the time. Yeah, and I think you're answering them well, for what it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have a, I have yeah. a real quick thing to interject there. Sure. I have sure. a litmus a, a litmus test that I that I kind of think as the roller skates effect. You know, if you, I mean, I haven't I haven't roller skated for years, but I remember the feeling. You go to the roller rink and you skate around for an hour, and then it's time to go, and you take your roller skates off, and you feel like the world is upside down. You feel so weird walking. You feel so disoriented. I can get that same feeling from Undermine, where I'll be on a fantastic run and my power will be through the roof, and then I die, and then I start over, and I feel like everything is upside down. I'm like, where is the lightning bolts that I was shooting? Where's the double swing? Where's the huge health pool? I just feel so weak again, and I want to get back to that high of the run. And I, so that, that propels me to just make another run and get that power back so I can feel like myself again. And to me, that's one of the key things to avoiding fatigue it's it's that hook it's the get them thinking about their next run as their current run is concluding because you want to get back to that feeling of of power so that's that's a that's a weapon against fatigue i think in my mind yeah i, I call it the gradius effect <laughs> yeah i'm a big fan of the gradius games and, i get that yeah and it's just like look i've got all of them i've got all my options got everything i've got lasers i'm just destroying oh really that one bullet really really <laughs> Really, Chris? Totally. Really? <laughs> Come on, stupid boss. I know, shoot the core. I'm well aware of the shoot the bloody core. Thank you. <laughs> but, yes. Great, great yeah. game. But I'm just that's what you've fed into. You're absolutely right. I just wanted to draw that out, so thank you for that. So Undermine by Thorium Entertainment. By the way, excellent name. Where's it come from? Where did it come from? Was that, was that the name of the game? Just a piece, piece of paper and a hat, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, um, are you talking about thorium or undermine? Yeah, thorium. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Just wanted a cool, cool-sounding word that cool wasn't sound. already taken, which is a challenge <laughs> these days. Kind of everything is taken. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's that's that works too. I mean, I've, we've had all sorts of answers to that question, but uh, okay, yes. <laughs> so, undermine uh, by thorium entertainment is out only on access on uh, Windows PC. Uh, any other platforms planned, or can you talk about that? If not, that's fine. Our 1.0 release is August 6th, nice. and so that will complete the, the we'll leave early access on Steam. Um, and on that same day, we're going to be launching on uh, Windows Store and Xbox, as well as Game Pass. Nice. Well, yeah. by the time people listen to this show, because um, we're you know recording in the past, everyone, uh, it will be out. So yeah, go grab it on Windows PC. It's fantastic. I right. highly, highly recommend it. I wouldn't have had uh, these two lovely gentlemen on the show if it wasn't the case you oh both, thank you yeah you've been fantastic guests thank you thank very you much for your time and uh, sharing so much about the design development of Undermine it's been really illuminating thank you very much thank you and uh, you're more than welcome to come back on the show talk about the new game that you make eventually because we do have repeat guests so it'd be great that's great All right. love to do that 
You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website caneandrinse.com. Thank you.